The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Christmas Eve, December 24, 2019, on the basis of Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. If your Christmas has gone reasonably well, if nothing all that terrible has happened to you or to your loved ones, you might just have a red team to thank for that. If you've never heard of a a red team before, the concept actually originated back in the 1800s when the Prussian army was getting sick and tired of losing battles to this tiny but brilliant French general by the name of Napoleon. So as they geared up for their next battle against the French, the Prussians not only came up with their own battle plan, their own strategy, but they actually appointed a group of their generals to sort of represent the French and try and defeat them, try and and poke holes in the plan they had come up with. As all of this played out on a, a map of the potential battlefield, the Prussian forces were represented with little blocks of wood that were painted blue, and Napoleon's French forces were represented with little blocks of wood that were painted red. And so the generals who were representing the opposition, trying to defeat the Prussian strategy, became known as the red team. The idea of a red team is based on the concept that as individuals and really as groups, it is very easy for us to develop certain shared assumptions and certain hidden biases. For groups of people to all look at things from exactly the same perspective, even if it is a very valuable perspective, a limited perspective. And so if you don't try and test those assumptions and expose those blind spots, you eventually set yourself up for disaster. After the Prussians actually defeated Napoleon and his forces, this concept of a red team sort of spread far and wide. Our U.S. intelligence agencies use red teams to keep us safe from terrorist attacks. Communications companies use red teams to protect our data from hackers. And companies like Apple and Amazon use red teams to hone their corporate strategy and build better products. But you know, as I was listening to this podcast episode that was all about these red teams, it kind of got me wondering, what if no matter how many people you got together and how diverse their perspectives were, everyone still sort of shared some assumptions, had the same point of view? What if there were problems where everyone's solutions still sounded kind of the same? And what if the problems that those people were trying to solve were not just problems like how to win a battle or how to protect data from hackers, but how to solve the problem, the problem that everyone is really working on and everyone faces, the problem of trying to put our completely broken world completely back together. In a very real way, everyone recognizes that problem. In some way, everyone is trying to work on that problem. In fact, that's the very problem that is the focus of these verses from Micah chapter 5. I know that because the very last word that you heard from those verses is the word peace. That's a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. If you were at the concert on Sunday afternoon, you'd heard me talk a little bit about this concept of shalom. Shalom means that everything 
is right. Everything is exactly how it is supposed to be. In fact, when we think about shalom, we might even picture a Christmas ornament. Christmas ornament is very delicate and very fragile, but as long as every little piece is in just the right place, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. And yet we live in a world where that delicate, fragile ornament has fallen to the ground and has broken and shattered into a thousand pieces, which raises the question, how are we going to put them back together again? How are we going to take everything that is so obviously wrong and once again make it right? And as we'll see tonight, it wouldn't matter how many people we tried to get together to solve that problem and how diverse their perspectives were, we would still try and all solve that problem from certain shared assumptions. And yet, thankfully, what God offers us tonight is something far better than a red team. God offers us his own divine revelation. God offers us a plan for peace that is completely unpredictable. He offers us a strategy for achieving shalom that takes us by total surprise. He offers us ideas for putting our broken world back together that no one would have ever come up with on their own. And that plan is simply this, that when everything goes wrong, it's then that everything is right. That plan is laid out in these verses and it's really embodied in a single word, a familiar word around Christmas time, the word Bethlehem. You've no doubt heard of the town Bethlehem before, which is a little bit surprising when you consider the fact that plenty of people living in biblical times would have never heard of Bethlehem. In the book of Joshua, there's actually a list of all the significant towns and villages that are in the southern part of Israel where Bethlehem was. There are a hundred different places named, and Bethlehem doesn't make the cut. Bethlehem was, however, put on the map when one of its residents, a young shepherd boy by the name of David, became king of all Israel. From those very lowly beginnings, David ascended to unparalleled heights. Israel's greatest peace and greatest prosperity was achieved as a result of the reign of King David. You might say that David accomplished shalom for the nation of Israel, that perfect, delicate, beautiful ornament with all of its pieces perfectly in place. Of course, none of that happened in in Bethlehem. All of that happened in Jerusalem, in a palace, in the capital city, exactly where you'd expect. Well, now several centuries had passed since David was king, and there were some cracks that were starting to form in that beautiful ornament that David had achieved. The people of Israel still thought that those cracks could maybe be glued, maybe be taped back together, maybe be repaired somehow. But through prophets like Micah, God's message to them was just the opposite. God told them that that beautiful, fragile ornament was going to come falling to the ground, break and shatter into a thousand pieces. David's royal kingdom was going to come crashing down. And it was only then that God would send another king, an even greater king into the world who would once and for all achieve for us this perfect thing called shalom. That's God's plan. When everything goes wrong, that's when everything is right. I don't know about you, but that's probably not the plan I would have come up with. In fact, I think it's safe to say that no one in our world would have come up with a plan like that. We often think that we live in a very divided world where no one can agree on anything at all, but we're actually much more united than we might realize. 
there are certain fundamental assumptions about life where we all share the same natural assumptions. And this is one of those areas that if this broken and shattered world is going to be put back together again, if everything that is wrong is going to turn out right, then we would naturally assume that everything has to go right. For example, November 3rd, 2020, a very important date coming up this year, also known as Election Day. On that day, roughly 50% of the population will very vehemently want one specific thing to happen. On that day, the other half of the population will just as vehemently want the exact opposite thing to happen. Seems like we're sure divided. But 100% of the population all agrees on one thing, that power is important, that power is worth having, that if things are going to turn out right, then that election needs to go right. Or is it left? You know what I mean, right? Take wealth, for example. As you know, in our world, there are some people who think that the greatest way to, to build and create wealth is to let people, let individuals, let businesses keep the money that they've earned, spend it however they want, even if that means that they pay their workers pretty poorly, even if that means that they get to live in mansions while other people live on the streets. It's their money. They earned it. Other people might say, no, the greatest way to build wealth is to force those individuals and businesses to pay their workers a certain wage and to pay a certain level of taxes so that they are less rich, but that other people are less poor. Seems like we're completely divided, but we all agree that wealth is important. We all agree that wealth is worth having. What about morality? We might think there are completely different and competing vision, uh, versions of morality in our world. That one person says, live and let live. Do what makes you feel good, help other people do the same. While other people say, no, there are universal and objective standards of right and wrong, and not only should we hold ourselves to those standards, but we should try and hold other people to those standards too. Seems like we're divided. And yet we all agree that morality is important, that being a good person is an important thing. In fact, we might even think of some of the objections that people have to the idea of believing in God, questions that they often raise like, If God is so good and so wonderful, why is there so much evil in the world? If religion is such a beneficial and important thing, how come religious people sometimes seem so terrible? If God's love and God's forgiveness are really unconditional and free, does that mean that someone like a terrorist or a serial killer could just repent at the end of their life and then get into heaven? Those are questions that both religious people and non-religious people ask and struggle with. It's just that the religious people are religious in spite of those questions, and perhaps the non-religious people are non-religious because of those questions. And yet they're really all based on that same assumption, that if things are going to turn out right, things need to go right. So here God comes along and he pulls the ultimate red team, the ultimate idea that is just the complete opposite of that. He says, when everything goes wrong, that's when everything is right. How do you think God's plan is going to turn out? Well, to some degree, we already know the answer to that question. A lot of what the prophet Micah said about this king that was coming has already taken place. Micah tells us that this king is going to stand and shepherd his flock. In other words, he is not the kind of king who sits down so that his subjects can serve him. He's the kind of king who stands up so that he can serve them. 
In fact, he stands up to do what a shepherd does for them. That when the enemy comes and attacks the flock, the shepherd places himself between the enemy and the flock. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Micah says that this king is going to establish a kingdom that's really more like a family. And a family that is open to everyone. It's not a kingdom or a family that's just for one race or one culture. It's not just for people who have been good this year or who have lived up to a certain set of moral standards. No, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there's a place in this kingdom for you. And then finally, Micah tells us that this king's greatness is going to reach the ends of the earth. Here we are. Exhibit A. Thousands of years later, we still have this thing called Christmas. And around the world tonight, millions, billions of people are speaking and singing and calling on and praying to the name of this king, this name, the name of this baby born in Bethlehem, the name Jesus. Compare that to the names of other kings and other kingdoms that have tried to make a name for themselves over the years. Back in 1980, there was a British author by the name of Malcolm Muggridge who made what I think is kind of an interesting observation. He said this, In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. A murderous Georgian in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite as wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I have seen America, wealthier, and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than all the rest of the world put together, all in one lifetime. All gone with the wind. England now just a part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with dismemberment and bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found. America haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam. All in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. There's a very natural assumption inside of us that in order to make everything right, we need to take wealth and power and human virtue and combine them all together into one and see what we can do. Plenty of people have tried over the years. All have failed. In contrast, God says, tell you what, give me weakness and poverty. Give me shame and defeat. Give me the culmination of human evil and its ultimate consequence of death. And let's just ball those up and put them all in one life, in the life of this baby born in Bethlehem, and let's see what happens. Here we are. His greatness has reached to the ends of the earth. One king still stands. And that's very important for us to realize. Because when it comes to this important concept of shalom, we're not quite there yet, and I think you know that. This king named Jesus has accomplished Siloam. He's, he, he's achieved it. He's won it, you might say. And yet we, of course, still wait for that Shalom to be fully realized. Our world still looks as though it has been broken and shattered into a thousand different pieces. And yet because 
God's strategy worked in the life of Jesus, you and I can be completely confident that it will work in our lives as well. You know, I was listening to this episode, this podcast episode that was all about red teams. And one of the things that they talked about is what's known as the Abilene Paradox. So the Abilene Paradox is where a group of people all express agreement about something, even though none of them really want whatever it is that they're expressing agreement about. So we might picture it this way. There's a family that lives in this small town down in Texas. And it's a hot summer's day and everyone is exhausted and cranky and on edge. And so then the mom and the family suggest, you know what, why don't we drive to Abilene to have dinner? The dad says, sure, that sounds like a good idea. The kids, they're on board too. They get in the car and they go. The drive is long and miserable and hot. The food at the diner where they stop is terrible. They get back home and they're in an even worse mood than when they left. And they sit around and try and figure out why they went to Abilene in the first place. They realize that mom just threw out an idea because she was looking for something, anything for them to do. And then everyone else just expressed agreement with it because they thought everyone else wanted to go. They all said, let's go to Abilene even though not a single one of them wanted to. That's why red teams are important. And that's why you and I need God to disrupt our natural plans, our natural strategy with his own. So that we would never say something as foolish as, let's go to Abilene, but instead would say something far wiser than that. You heard it. 700 years after Micah spoke this prophecy about this tiny, no-name, backwoods town, you heard it, the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And they said, let's go to Bethlehem. You maybe know that as part of the Christmas story, a couple months later, there were some more people who came from much farther away and brought treasures with them. And they too said, let's go to Bethlehem. That means that whether you are a dirt-poor shepherd or the wealthiest wise man in all the world, this king that God has promised you, this shalom that he brings you, you know exactly where to find it. So let's go to Bethlehem. Not literally, I'm not suggesting we take a pilgrimage, but let's trust that what God did on this night, all those years ago, he will repeat in our day that he will do here and now among us. That, for example, getting right with God does not depend on some sort of triumph of our human virtue. Instead, it depends only on a triumph of his over all of our human evil. That, for example, a church was never intended by God to be a day spa for saints, but instead a triage unit for broken sinners. That becoming a Christian makes you the Lord of exactly no one, but a servant of exactly everyone. That when life is full of pain and difficulty and tears and sadness, when God seems to be farthest away, he's actually closest at hand. In other words, when our lives, that that beautiful, delicate ornament that is our lives, seems broken and shattered in a thousand pieces, maybe, just maybe, that's when it looks exactly right. No one in their right mind would have ever said it. But let's go to Bethlehem. 
It has become the motto and the rallying cry of people who know the lesson that Christmas so clearly teaches, that when everything goes wrong, that's when everything is right. Amen.